That uh, I may be leading a, I plan to be leading a Bible Lands tours, two of them, in 2020, uh, to Israel, June 14th uh, to the 23rd, and then to the seven churches of Asia Minor you read about in Revelation 2 and 3, October 4th to 12th. I plan to limit each tour to 50 people. It's just a nice uh, size group to handle for each tour. Knowing the land of the Bible is really as important to understanding God's Word as knowing the layout of a football field is to comprehending the game of football. So I want to invite you, each and every one of you, to an informational meeting uh, here at Osterville Baptist Church downstairs in the cafe on Monday evening, September 9th. That's two weeks from uh, tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. There's no obligation. You're not making any commitment. You're just getting information about the two uh, tours. I'm also holding informational meetings at uh, Grace Community Church down in Hilton Head Island where we expect quite a few uh, people to join us and that'll be the weekend of September 15th and then at Webster Bible Church Church in New York uh, the weekend of September 20th. So it's really open to the first 50 participants who register and send in their down payment, all that, their deposit, all that will be explained uh, to you. So you get all the information you really need at this first meeting, primarily then we have several after that for those who are actually going. And the only thing I would ask of you this morning is if you would sign up uh, out at the Welcome Center, if you're planning to come to the informational meeting, even if you're not sure, go ahead and sign up. Put your email so I can send you the full flyer that gives you the information ahead of time. So if you would sign up, put your email address, uh, we'll take it from there and get the information uh, to you. I'd love to see many of you go. When we went to Israel in June, uh, 48 of us, I think about close to 30 were from the Cape and about 20 uh, six were from Osterville Baptist. We'd love to have you go with us. Uh, why don't we just have a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, transition into uh, the study of the attributes of God and looking this morning at uh, the faithfulness of God. Shall we pray? Father, we do acknowledge to you that, and we're so glad that you are our faithful God all through the generations uh, to your people of Israel of old, to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the world in general, you are a faithful God. Praying for those today who just need that special reminder, going through maybe dark times, hard times, difficult times, and even, Lord, those who may be coming in really on a good high with uh, blessing after blessing, that how you want us to turn to you and see that they come from your hand. And so bless our time together, we pray, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text eventually is going to be uh, Lamentations 3 that you can turn to. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you, a blue Bible. It's on page 688. Lamentations is one of the more difficult books to find in the Old Testament, but if you turn to page 688, it's right after the book of Jeremiah. Just love the music today, love that last hymn. I'm sure it stirs all of our hearts, great is thy faithfulness. 
Thomas Chisholm was the author of the hymn, born in 1866, right after the Civil War. Um, and then he became a Christian at the age of 27. He entered the ministry of the Lord Jesus 11 years later, but he only lasted a year due to poor health. So he wrote the hymn in 1923 when he was around 57, and he sent it to his friend, William Runyon, who was a professor at Moody Bible Institute, and then he put the music to the words. It really didn't catch on becoming one of the favorites of God's people uh, in the church until George Beverly Shea began singing it at the Billy Graham Crusades. And if you've ever been to a Graham crusade, I guarantee you heard George Beverly Shea sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, because they did it at every crusade. And then it became the favorites of so many believers. Some Bible colleges, seminaries uh, made it their, their theme hymn of the, of the whole institution. At the end of his life, Chisholm wrote these words. He said, My income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years, which has followed me up until now. But I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God, and that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care, for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness." The hymn that he wrote, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is based on the words we want to focus in on in Lamentations chapter 3. Let me read verses 21 to 24 that I believe are on the screen as well. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. It's interesting, if you read the previous 20 verses, you'll find that he had no hope. He's in a dark tunnel. He's in the valley of despair. Things do not look good. Then we come to verse 21. I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Not only was Jeremiah in chains, in a hard time, suffering greatly through the years, but the people of Judah to whom he was writing were experiencing the same. The Babylonians had come and they destroyed the holy temple. They took away the people of Israel, except for the very poor. They took away the people several hundred miles into Babylonian. And there they became slaves uh, to the people there. And so the people were suffering greatly as well. Yet through this all, Jeremiah proclaims that God is faithful. The faithfulness of God. Unfaithfulness seems to be one of the characteristics of our day. In the business world, it used to be a man's word was what? was his bond. You shook a hand, the deal was made. No longer because people are unfaithful. In the life of the family, they stood before the pastor and the people. Sacred vows were made. 
I promise you my faithfulness. And they become discarded like a worn-out garment. In the church, ordination vows are given. The service sets the man of God apart for ministry. Years pass on. One thing comes after another. And pretty soon, unfaithfulness, not faithful to the gospel or the word of God because it's repudiated even by very well-known Christian leaders. So unfaithfulness abounds, and it's refreshing to all of our hearts and minds to be reminded of God's faithfulness and to focus upon the Lord himself, who is faithful in all things and at all times. Listen to what the psalmist says as he views God clothed in faithfulness. Psalm 89.8 This is the Davidic psalm, by the way, the Davidic covenant psalm. The whole thing is saying, God is saying, I promised to David and I promised to Judah certain things and they will come about though you have been unfaithful. I am faithful. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? Listen to Psalm 36.5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Far beyond all finite comprehension is the unchanging faithfulness of God. Everything about God as we've been going through this series of his attributes is great, fast, incomparable, and we can only skim the surface on this great attribute of God. In that first Psalm that we read earlier, the first we saw where Jeremiah is, as it were, looking at God. Now, obviously, God is spirit. He can't see him as a person. But he's looking at him, and it's just like you're looking at me today. You see a man in shirt and trousers and shoes. But when he looks at God, he sees him completely engulfed and clothed in faithfulness. It's just a, it's a defining characteristic Of God, every time you look at him, how great is his faithfulness. So what does it all mean when it comes down to your life and my life about the faithfulness of God? It means he always does the right thing about everything in every situation. He's never made a mistake with your life. Young people, he didn't make a mistake of the home you were born into. He didn't make a mistake about some handicap with which you were born. He didn't make a mistake about anything that has happened in your life, even though you may have. He is faithful in every single situation. Not only does he do what he says, that he's going to do. He fulfills every single promise that he makes. He is always there to fulfill his promise to his people, to Israel, to the church, to Moses, to Abraham, and to you, and to me as well. Sidlow Baxter observed this. The faithfulness of God is like a gigantic archway spanning human history from its beginning to its ending. Do you see it? From the beginning to the end of time, there's, there's a tunnel, and that tunnel has the word faithfulness on it. 
No matter who's up there, who's, who's on earth, who's governing, who's doing what. Faithfulness characteristic of everything that is happening. Then he goes on to describe how that archway spans the pillars of God's attributes. What does he mean by that? Well, in order for God to be absolutely faithful. So I'm sitting here today and saying, how do I know I can trust this God? How do I know it? He says, God's archway of faithfulness is spanned by his attributes. And in particular, there are five essential ones that he must possess if he is to be faithful. We've seen them all, so we won't take much time uh, describing them because we've spent messages on each one of them. Omniscience is the first one. God must be omniscient in order for him to be faithful to you and me. That is, he must know everything there is to know about you and to know about me. If he did not know every single thing about us, the worst thing, the worst thoughts, the worst actions, the things that I wished to God's name I had never done or never thought, he knows all about that. And he still loves me. He still loves you. And he is faithful. Omniscience is essential to his faithfulness. Last night as I was preparing my heart for this morning, I like to listen to a lot of different music. And I listened to a song I hadn't heard in 41 years, written by a person you've probably never heard of, Dallas Holmes. He knew me then, he knows me now. Google it, you'll be blessed. He knew me then, he knows me now, he still loves me. Omnipotence is a second, he cannot promise to be faithful in every circumstance of life if he's not all-powerful. What do we mean by that? If he isn't an omnipotent, then some situation, some person, something might come into my life that is greater than God if he is not omnipotent and might be stronger than he is. So he couldn't protect us in every situation. There's a third, omnipresence. God has to be accessible to all his people at all times and everywhere in order to be faithful. So somebody asks, is, is God faithful? Yes, he is. How do we know? Well, how can he be faithful in every circumstance? Because he knows everything, he has all power to change everything, and he is always present. He is present with 7.8 billion people in the world today. There is not a corner of the earth that God is not present with those people. There are approximately 2.8 billion people, uh, Christians in the world today. There is not one of those believers who is not indwelt, baptized, sealed, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God is indwelling them, and that's what has made a lot of Christians persevere and stay with the stuff. The Lord is with me. He's on the present. But that's not enough. Not only omniscient, omnipotent, and on the present, but truth. Just think of it for a moment. If God were not absolutely truthful, imagine if you had to question just a little bit whether God's promises are really trustworthy, that he really will never leave me, that he really is with me to the end of the age, that he will supply my need, that he'll be with me when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that in every situation I can rely on his promises. 
when things are dark, when I'm saying goodbye to the one who I love the most, when the doctor looks at me and says it's terminal, he is with me. His plan is perfect. He is faithful. He will never be less than faithful because he's the God of truth. He told, Paul told Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. One of the things I've done through 54 years of ministry, whether it's in a church or in the prisons, when I meet with people who have a problem, of an individual, a family, a couple, I always start by asking one question or statement, and it's this. Whatever you do, please don't ever lie to me. I'm going to ask you questions. Don't ever lie to me. If you don't want to answer the question, fair enough. I don't want to go there. I'm not ready to answer it. That's fair enough. But don't lie to me. Inmates maybe lie sometimes. And they need to be told, eyeball to eyeball. Once you lie to me, I'll never know if I can trust you again. Once you lie to your husband, once you lie to your wife, once you lie to your children, once you lie to your parents, it takes time to rebuild trust. Don't lie. Just don't answer the question. Don't lie. God does not lie. He is faithful. He is true. Now, most of the time when we talk about God's faithfulness, even as I have done this morning or as we've sung about, probably most of us have been thank you, thinking about the Lord's faithfulness to me or the Lord's faithfulness to you, and therefore the focus is on us, and we respond as we should with gratitude and praise, and so we are singing, we are thinking, Lord, how I praise you for your faithfulness, but it's not about you, primarily. God's faithfulness is not about me, it's all about him. Besides keeping his promises to us, there is a crucial foundational truth for us to understand, which is God's faithfulness, not to you, not to me primarily, but faithful to his own name. Listen to his words. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake... O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Boy, does this need to emphasize today, people of God. Because I am so sick and tired of sermonettes, Christianettes, little ditties, when people of God are starving because there's a famine in the pulpit. They don't understand the glory of God. They don't understand the name of God, the person of God. It's all about me. No, it's not about you. It's all about him, primarily, and the glory of his name. Let me also just add on a side note here. No one is looking more forward to Pastor Rob being back than me. And we have such a faithful teacher of the word in Pastor Rob. Welcome him back with great joy. I know you will. Let me just say, you're going to think he's going to be all hyped up, and he is. But there's going to be also, reality sets in, <laughs> three months of no duties is over. 
Now he's got to face you. Okay? That's not a very pleasant thing to anticipate. Because I know you. Okay, that's a joke. One more essential attribute, and that's God's immutability. He cannot change. We saw this attribute seven weeks ago, and one of the verses we saw was Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Why aren't they consumed? They should have been. They're about as disloyal and unfaithful and ungodly and sinful as people could be. They're not consumed because God is faithful. He said he would preserve a remnant. Now, apart from these five attributes, you can't have a God who is faithful. He's got to know all things, have all power, be available to anyone, anywhere, at any time. He's got to be a God who is of absolute truthfulness and one who does not change. If he changes, just think how uncertain everything would be. Just think for a minute, you get down on your knees, something is heavy on your heart, you want to claim the truth of God, and you're thinking, oh, he might change. Maybe that changes this promise he made years ago. No, he doesn't change. But praise God, those thoughts about God changing or not being all that he is have no relevance because he's a faithful God. Let's move on to the second point, and it's faithfulness and the promises of God. And I want us to zero in on our key verses this, uh, for this morning, Lamentations 3, if you have your Bible. And let me just share three thoughts with you. And there's so much more. You talk about superficial, and you talk about just hitting some highlights. That's what I'm doing. I know that. It's not very deep. I understand. I think I could preach on this subject, the faithfulness of God, for 10 years. I really do. I mean, that's how unexhaustive it is. He never forgets, verses 21 and 24, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. I've circled that word. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, soul. therefore I will, there it is, hope in him. I've circled that, I've connected it to. Why did I do that? Because man can live about 40 days without bread, they say, three days without water, eight minutes without air, but he can only live one second without hope. One of the most wealthy, well-known men in all the world hanged himself a couple weeks ago. No matter what you think about what he did, what he didn't do, the point is he lost hope. And you don't have to go to that extent to lose hope. When you get into a dark, dark place and you stay there, it's, those are the times you start having dark thoughts. And we're here to help. God's people are there. There's hope for you. There's no person here, there's no person in the world who is beyond hope. None. There's always hope. Romans 15, 13, another great verse. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I circled those two words, hope again. We noted earlier the dark times in which Jeremiah wrote these words. And they were times of distress for Judah. There are times of distress for Jeremiah. Maybe you have a time of distress in your life. So what do you do? You go to God, you get on your knees, and you open up your Bible, and you leaf through it, and you get some wonderful promises of God. And he gives us fresh manna for the day. 
I think I may have told you a few years ago about a woman who touched my life. I guess it's been, oh, 1972, what is that, 47 years ago. And I was a pastor in New York, and I went up and visited her in the hospital, and she was dying. I knew her days were very short. She was 95 years old. I had left my New Testament in the car in the parking garage, and so when I got there, she had her Bible on her night table. And said, uh, Grandma, I always called her Grandma, I said, may I, may I use your scriptures and read scripture with you? She said, of course. And so I opened the Bible and I was leafing through John 14 and Romans 8 and Psalm 23. And every time I leafed through the pages, I'd see over in this corner and this corner and this corner, all through the Bible, I saw T-P, T-P, all through her Bible. And it got the best of me. I said, Grandma, I don't understand. I said, what is T-P? And she looked at me with that look that says, you really don't know and you're a pastor. It was that kind of look, but it was gracious. And she said, why, pastor? That means tried and proven. Tried and proven. I thought through the years about that. And I thought, you know, most Christians I know remember the things they ought to forget and they forget the things they ought to remember. We remember those things that God's forgotten. He's forgiven us. They're done. They're, they're washed away in the blood. Quit thinking. Don't let the enemy bring that up to you. You say, but you don't know my failure. I don't need to know your failure. It's none of my business. God wiped it clean. And their sins and iniquities, what? Why remember no more? He forgot it, therefore with Paul we say what? Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things that are before. But that's only half of it. Now we've got to remember the things that God has given us. And we do that with a T and a P. So when God answers your prayer, you go to that scripture and you just write the T and a P. Date 825-19. And then when you go and you're going through your Bible, you long forgot that problem. And you go say, oh yeah, I remember. God was so faithful to me. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. You know the remedy. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee, thou shalt find a solace there. God never forgets. Secondly, he never fails, verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Whoa, I wish I could preach ten weeks on that verse alone. My good friend, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who wrote a lot of books that our people going to Israel use, he wrote the commentary on the book of Lamentations in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which was produced by Dallas Theological Seminary. Charlie is a true, not only scholar of the land of the Bible, but of the Old Testament. He wrote these words 
on these verses. Jeremiah's condition paralleled that of Judah. His outward affliction and inward turmoil pushed him toward despair. Read those first 20 uh, verses when you get time in Lamentations. You'll see absolute despair and depression. However, one thought crowded out the hopelessness that threatened to overwhelm him. It was the faithfulness of God. And that faithfulness was based on his, my favorite Hebrew word, it was based on his hesed. There is no English word that can translate hesed adequately. If you just Google it and bring up the uh, 25 different versions of the Bible, you'll see 25 different loving kindness, mercies, steadfast love, enduring love, everlasting love. You'll see all these, they can't describe it in one word. And that's what gave Jeremiah the hope that, that he needed. The Hebrew for steadfast love. And out of that steadfast Hesed love came the faithfulness of God. So first remember that the Lord's steadfast love never ceases. This is how he himself revealed himself to the prophet Moses. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Notice he repeats, the Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed. There it is. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's for you. That's a promise. Lay hold of it today if you've never laid hold of it before. God's eternal, everlasting, steadfast, merciful love for you. And because of that, he will be faithful to you as well, and it'll never cease. It's wonderful. Even gets better. The verse says, His mercies never come to an end. They're never depleted. In fact, he says, they are new every morning. Notice it's in plural. Mercies. New every morning. One of the thoughts of this Hebrew word, has it has to do not only with this expression of deep love, it's used also of a, of a mother carrying the baby in her womb. I don't know I ever loved my daughters in the womb of my wife. As I look back, I was thinking on that this week. But I'll tell you what, she did. There's something in a mother when that baby is, is growing in the womb. She loves that baby and she hasn't even seen it and sometimes doesn't even know, is it a son, is it a daughter? And that's the way this word was used. Israel, having failed and disobeyed God as they did, could never exhaust God's hesed, his great love. God is saying that every morning he has new mercies, new ways to express to you his tender, caring, eternal love. And he has a different and a creative way Using as a husband and wife, he may give you a red rose today. Then he might give you a pink tulip. It may be a yellow carnation and an orange lily. Now stay with me. If all you do is take that red rose and just grab it, and all you do is think on that red rose, as good as it is, you're going to miss the orange and the yellow and what else God's had. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're going to miss the other mercies. 
God just wants to keep on pouring out his mercies and expressing his love uh, to you. Oftentimes, it's not only as you're alone with him and getting uh, a, a promise from his word, but it's through the body of Christ. Somebody shows up at your door. Somebody shows up at the hospital room. Somebody sends you a check. Somebody gives you a gift. Somebody writes you a note. It, there, there's a myriad of ways. Don't just waste those things. Those are God's expressions of his mercies that are new every day to you, sent to you in plurality. So we need to look with expectation every morning for God's new expression and display of his love. And maybe journal it and then put a T-P. Thirdly, close, he never falters. How many people do you know who do exactly what they say every single time they say in absolute perfection with what they said they were going to do? You know nobody like that except God. Except God. He alone is 100% faithful 100% of the time with 100% perfection. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 1, 18, 20. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Just to make it in one sentence, if you were studying that passage of Scripture, Paul is talking about the great mercy of God that called him into the ministry and that is sustaining him in his ministry. And what he's saying is the source of stability for Paul in ministry was God, what? And his faithfulness. Oh, so that's what keeps you persevering. How many times have we made resolutions or promises only to falter a short time later? We do that with sin and temptation. We get so tired, so weary. There we are on our knees again, confessing the same sin. Lord, I did it again. I shouldn't have, I did it again. Oh, Lord, would you forgive me? And pretty soon we just get tired of it. We weary of it. We falter and we fail and we promise God never again and then we do it again. Listen, God is faithful. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what area of temptation that you have a problem with. But I want you to know that God is faithful. He will give you victory over that sin that so easily besets you. But the key, now stay, stay with me on this. The key and where we go wrong many times, we focus on the testing or the temptation. I need to lose some weight. We focus on the diet. No wonder we don't lose weight. We focus on the internet and where we've gone wrong there. And we focus on that. We focus on what I just said and how I spoke in a way I shouldn't have spoken. And if you keep doing that, that's just a legalistic tendency and that has no power in it whatsoever. You'll never get the victory that way. You've got to focus on God, his word, and his promises. And to picture what God has done for you as a Christian, my brother John shared with me a good illustration. Picture yourself as a tenant in a townhouse. And the Lord, landlord is making your life miserable. One day a new owner buys the townhouse. He's a kind man, a good man. He knows that you have great needs, and he basically has no financial needs. He visits you and says, you know, I know what you're going through. I'm going to let you live in this townhouse free until you get your feet on, on, the, on the ground. He was a good, kind, and gracious landlord. Then there's a knock on your door. And it's your old landlord, as mean and demanding as ever, just Mr. Grouchy. He demands you start paying him for some rent. 
what are you going to do? The best approach. The best approach is to remind him that you are under new management and that if he wants any money, he'll have to take up your case with the new landlord because you don't have any more obligations to your old landlord. Neither do you. You're under new management, new ownership. There's a new landlord. There's a new sheriff in town. He's gracious, he's compassionate, he's merciful, and he's all-powerful. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are under new management and have become new. And we saw that power of Christ in his omnipotence that is manifested in you who believe, Ephesians 1. He will not falter in fulfilling his promise to you. Let's close the message with just two thoughts, and I'll move quickly here. Faithfulness and the passion of God. I want you to notice that his faithfulness is always connected with his great love. Always. His passion. Because of his hesed, he is faithful. Salvation. Look at John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe the Son, this has version has the translation obey, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Did you see it? If you believe in the Son, the Lord Jesus, you'll be forgiven and have eternal life in heaven. That's a promise. Lord, I believe you died for my sins, you were buried, you rose again. I believe in you that you rose from the and that you want to forgive me my sins. Lord, I believe that. I claim that promise. If you never claimed to do it this morning, he will fulfill that promise. On the other hand, God is faithful. He cannot lie. If you refuse to believe and trust his son, the wrath of God continues to abide on you and will forever, apart from the saving grace of the Lord Jesus, because God is faithful to his promise. Security. This is the one we close the message with, a thought about the great security believers in Christ have. Listen to Paul's wonderful words. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So I read the story for the first time this week. He was 60 years old. Name was Timothy Henry Gray. Caden, a 13-year-old boy, and his sister, Amber 10, discovered the frozen body of Timothy Gray on December 27, 2012, under a railroad pass. There was no sound of foul play. We could not detect any kind of a crime. Just a homeless cowboy who died of hypothermia. Except for the detail, he stood to inherit $300 million. Gray was the adopted great-grandson of Senator William Andrews Clark, a railroad tycoon with the Union Pacific, and the founder of a small Nevada town that maybe you've heard of, Las Vegas. This heir to a fortune lived, and he died like a pauper. Let me remind you, you're no longer a slave. You're not a pauper. You're not just a servant. You are a co-heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a legal right to the family fortune of heaven. The will has been executed. 
The courts have been satisfied. Your spiritual account has been completely funded. You, Ephesians 1, have been blessed with every spiritual blessing there is in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's yours. Need more patience? It's yours. It's already deposited. Need more self-control? It's yours. Need more love? It's yours. Need more boldness? It's yours. Need more faith? It's yours. It's all there. It's in the deposit. It's in the account. It's up to you to claim it and appropriate it by the indwelling Holy Spirit by faith. Don't be timid in your understanding of all that God has recorded in his word is yours. I listened last night over and again. Who you say I am. We sing it here by Hillsong. One of my favorites, Zach Williams, sang it in Harding Prison with all the inmates. No longer slaves. Paul's word, faithful is he that called you, who also will do it. Indeed, God is faithful. Great is his faithfulness. Would you bow with me in prayer? If you're here this 